Welcome to the Hunter's Hub Hunt More podcast. This podcast is built to get you hunting more. We talk with the greatest hunters around the world, known and unknown. We tell stories, give tips, share opinions, and talk all things hunting. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Hunter's Hub Hunt More podcast. It is Sunday and that means it's Safari Sunday and we're going to stick with the theme. We have our great friend and podcast returnee and veteran, whatever you want to call him, Lauren Ramoni coming on. Um, he's been in Tanzania for the season and he's coming back and we're starting to recap his 2020 season in Tanzania and uh, there's some amazing stories on here. We talk about a lion coming in the blind with him. So uh yeah, you guys aren't going to want to miss this podcast. Listen here. It's a nice long episode. Enjoy it, guys. And let's go to Africa. Uh, hey, buddy. hey, what's up, dude? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep, I got you. Okay, cool. Yeah, this should be better. Does it sound, sound better to you? Yeah. Plus, okay. I got off our Wi-Fi because our Wi-Fi sucks at our office most times. So. <laughs> uh, uh, we were just... We were, we were up in, in Colorado, um, in Pagosa Springs. My my in-laws have a place up there. And it's not that far from the actual town, but still, like, there's no service. And uh, oh, yeah. they use the same sa- satellite Wi-Fi that we use in the bush. So it wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, – we'll hop into this podcast. Um, is like So I kind of, you know, just want to talk about your – 2021 season how things went and kind of maybe give a a little breakdown on how no international like not allowing international hunting this year was effective towards maybe not yourself but people you know type of deal does that make sense yeah absolutely um well i mean it's a it's pretty much a given i mean we all we all knew what what was going to happen with um you know when we all kind of heard about covid and travel being stopped and halted um so it's just been uh but would you just give me a minute i gotta get my dog out of here she's <laughs> you're good sorry just <laughs> oh, yeah, Come on. Come on. i shut the door and she's figured out how to how to get the weasel boy in um, <laughs> that's funny all right that's awesome um, Sorry. Um, no, no worries, dude. No worries. How do you want to do it? You want to start it over? or how, No, how you're I... good. Just keep going with it, you know. No problem. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, when COVID hit, I think we all had time to mentally prepare what was going to happen in terms of, you know, travel being halted. And, you know, the the biggest factor to take into consideration when, when thinking about everybody's season is – um, everybody knows that, that hunting is really fueled by, by dollars, by money. Um, and without revenue, um, a lot of the hunting community, whether they're outfitters or professional hunters, aren't able to really protect the resources that, that we've kind of, um, you know, that we've dedicated our lives to protect, so to speak. So um, it, we obviously were mentally prepared for it, but at the same time, um, no one... You know, there's been so much uncertainty with, with COVID. Um, fortunately for us, Tanzania remained open. They sort of had a different approach to the COVID pandemic. So when our season started, it was July 1st. And so we were really the only country in Africa that was that was open to hunters. And 
you know, fortunately, um, we were able to get a few hunts in the season. And I know um, Zambia eventually opened up in South Africa. And I know a couple of outfitters were able to um, get a couple of safaris in. So um, it was amazing that we were able to do what we did. But I don't think anybody thought that we were going to be in a position where I really didn't think I was going to make it out to the bush this year. And um, and I did. So um, I'm very grateful. And I'm sure all the other outfitters and PHs that had the chance to get out in the bush were were um, elated with that. Um, but having said that, you know, it's it's sort of how do I how do I explain it um, better? But, you know, we have our company, for instance, we've got almost nine hunting concessions. And, you know, there's obviously a certain amount of revenue that you have to generate in order to pay the staff fees, to pay for the anti-poaching, do the community development. And, you know, with having one or two safaris, it, it obviously doesn't cover your basis. So um, it's it's obviously been catastrophic. I mean, there's, there's no other way to, there's no other better word to say than catastrophic because it really has been, um, detrimental to um, wildlife conservation in, in Africa and really all over the world. Um, but having said that, one thing that I did notice, especially in Tanzania, that I think is a great testament to hunters all over the world is that Tanzania was the only country, like I mentioned, that was open. And there were absolutely no people going to do photographic safaris, even though they knew that um, that Tanzania was open, but we did have hunters that came to Tanzania to hunt. So it sort of it sort of shows you how important hunting is to hunters as opposed to people doing photographic safaris and how hunters are willing to risk more in order to get out there because they know there's a lot more at stake, if that makes sense. So from that standpoint, it was it was really refreshing and um, just incredible to see how many hunters, despite everything, were still willing to bite the bullet and get out to Africa and hunt. So it was it was really, really awesome to see. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of friends. We had a lot of hunters and members that actually went to Africa. And a few of them went to there multiple different times to multiple countries when everything first started opening. Um, on a normal year, how many safaris do you do on a non-COVID year? I think it really, I mean, it really depends. Um, our business model is different to a lot of people. We don't do a lot of volume, um, despite the amount of areas we have. So we have nine areas and we try really to do on average, if we could do anywhere from like three to four trips uh, per area maximum, then you're doing, that's that's really what you're, you're trying to accomplish. Um, and like this year, I was very fortunate I was able to stay busy, but like I said, from a company standpoint, we were probably doing, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, five, five percent of what we usually do, or 10 percent at, at maximum. So, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge loss. Yeah, no, totally. That's what I was kind of wondering is how many, like compared to a normal year, how many safaris did you do in 2020 compared to a normal year, you know? No, yeah, like I said, we probably did as as a company as a whole, we probably did five percent of what we usually do. Wow, that's that's. I mean, that's better than most, obviously. If you look at it, that's better than a lot of other companies, even you know. But still, that's a that's a real low year, and 
you were lucky to get those, you know, that 5%, because, I mean, like you said, there was a lot of people that weren't even traveling just due to because they were scared, even though you could, and then just the whole world was crazy for this entire year of 2020, pretty much. No, absolutely. Like, like I said, I mean, I was just grateful to, to get what we had, but, you know, irrespective of what the deal is, um, like I said, you know, we, you have a certain amount of revenue that you have to generate in order to, you know, keep the anti-poaching teams monitoring the concessions 24 seven. You've got the community development that you still have to do. You've got your staff that you have to pay. So, I mean, when you really factor in everything, it, it really is a huge financial undertaking and this year really has been a huge um not just let's forget about the finances because this is not really why we do what we do it's it's mainly the the loss to um protecting our our wildlife areas really yeah it's just it's just crazy to see how you know everything got shut down and whatnot and you know moving forward how are things looking for the 2021 season how is people reacting to things being open or people slowly moving back or people like jumping right on board as quick as possible it's it's honestly been extremely refreshing coming up to christmas i was extremely uh skeptical especially with the politics that have been going on and and the elections and such so um you know just that uncertainty of let's let's just call it the economy and obviously still going moving forward with the COVID. i was very skeptical but to my surprise we've had just incredible response. Um, there's just so many people, I think from being trapped at home and feeling in prison, so to speak, I think people are really ready to jump back out there and especially hunters because they really know the value of what they're doing. I mean, there is no nothing purer than being out in the outdoors and hunting and experiencing that intimacy. So um, it's been incredible, honestly. Um, and if all goes to plan, then it, it should be a great season. But, you know, nobody really knows. It's not like last year or the years before where, you know, you have a, a plan and it works out the way that it's supposed to. Now with with COVID, it's, it's really so much of it is up in the air. Yeah. So as long as things stay... Uh stay on track of how it's looking to be where it's going to be everything's a go and open i feel like everyone's going to start having a really good year in 2020 2021 um i feel like it might be a little slow for 2021 but then you know 2022 and so on if things are regaining normalcy i think everyone will start to see a huge change in those years what are your thoughts on that no i i agree with you you know with the vaccine that's now coming out i've, I've heard from a lot of people there's obviously some people i've talked to that that are against vaccines but um a lot of people it's just given them that sense of uh security that sense of just like okay well there's a plan there's progress um now we're willing to you know willing to risk it to get the biscuit you know what i mean yeah now that they have a vaccine there should be no in my eyes there should be no reason why everything should be shut down if there's a vaccine you know what i mean that's just how i think of it but no, I know. And, you know, it's it's crazy because I think the last time I did a podcast with you it was like right in the heat of COVID. And I was yeah, actually, it, I don't know if I, I think I might have had COVID when we did the last podcast or the first one anyways. Um, wow. Um, early, early in March, April, somewhere around there. Um, but, you know, it's just crazy to see how things have moved, even though COVID is still 
they're saying that the cases are worse than they were before. Um, you're still seeing a little bit more normality to the whole situation. People are, I mean, I went to the mall for Christmas to go shopping for my wife and my family. And yes, people were still wearing masks and everything, but it was so different to March, April, May, June, where people were still so scared because nobody really knew what COVID was. People kind of have accepted it for what it is. They're trying to be as precautious, but I feel like things are a little bit more normal than what they were. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I think everyone's kind of got rid of the initial scare of it, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like the flu. You just got to take it how, you know, can't stop living to handle this, which I mean was why I think everyone, you know, speaking of that, everyone should just book a 21 day safari <laughs> with you and, even if they have to book out to 2025, they should just, you know, get on board and book out right now, you know, just to take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think whether you're a PH, an outfitter, an agent, or whether you're a hunter yourself, um, I mean, there's, there's so much that this whole pandemic has taught us. And I know that when I was sick and I had a little bit of a harder time than most people, but being able to have that opportunity to get to the bush and hunt, I can't like, I just, I can't tell you how amazing, how blessed, how fortunate I felt just to, I mean, I never take any moment for granted because, you know, when you come to the first world and you see how people interact with one another and how out of touch with reality they really are, it really makes you appreciate the natural things a lot more. And so, I mean, I really, I can tell you this year, I really did not take one, one thing for granted. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just, you know, even if, you know, like you said, especially on a year like this, but even if you go over to those, you know, third world countries, you kind of come back and, you know, for a while you're like, yeah, we have it really good. And after a while it goes away. But, you know, this year, especially like you said, it'd be a year that it's going to stick with you for a while because it just feels so lucky to be able to do the things that we've been able to do and that you've been able to do this year. Um, So let's uh, let's talk about some of the safaris you had this year. Well, let's, do you have any, key safaris that you want to touch base on um and give some stories on or anything in particular yeah so i did i did a a bow hunt with um with with a couple um and it was i think that was probably one of my most memorable safaris it was a it was a bow hunt so it was a little bit you know usually we predominantly do um rifle hunts but um you know we had talked about this bow hunt for you know, after the shutdown and Maasai land species was really um, on the list of things that they wanted to accomplish. So we made it happen. And, you know, you got to remember Tanzania is, is set up completely differently in terms of the laws and regulations that are enforced. So for bow hunters that are used to sitting in a tree blind or sitting over water or bait or whatever it is, you know, um, Tanzania, you're not allowed to do that. So you're, you're, pretty much have to spot and stalk everything. So that's what we set out doing. And in the beginning, I think there was some, a little bit of skepticism because as a bow hunter, that's, you don't really know, everybody knows how difficult spot and stalk can be with a bow, but we were just, I mean, we were blown away and all of us were pleasantly surprised with, with what we were able to accomplish. I mean, we shot, uh, I mean, we shot quite a lot of animals and, you know, some, world record animals for for a bow which you know i'm not big into world record animals or whatever that's not why i hunt but it's always just a great testament to conservation and the areas when you're able to 
harvest animals of that quality, you know, especially with a bow. Yeah, no doubt. And like, you know, I, a lot of people are against, you know, they say, you know, they're not trophy hunters, but the thing is, like you're saying, when you harvest the biggest animal, usually it's going to be the oldest and your conservation has proven to let these animals age and, you know, grow. And so I think it's really awesome that you guys are able to, you know, get out there in the field. And, uh, you know, I know the bow hunter you're with and he doesn't just, he's a conservationist. He doesn't just go to, to shoot animals. He goes to have the experience, find the oldest, the biggest, you know, he doesn't just go to hunt. He goes to be a true conservationist when he goes. No, absolutely. And that was one of the, the most refreshing things for me was to hunt with somebody of that caliber, somebody that really is a, a true hunter by the definition in terms of how conservation orientated he was, but also someone that's able to be patient. There's somebody that's not just, okay, that's a great lesser kudu or a great Gerenok, let's take that one. It's waiting out for that special animal. And for him in his hunting career, it's proven it's proven to be successful because he's been super patient. And if you really look at his track record and, and the type of animals he shot, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's incredible. It speaks for itself, you know. No, so, ab ab absolutely. Yeah. What, uh, what all species did you guys end up taking on that safari? Um, so he had actually done, he had done a safari in Tanzania and Maasai land in the past. Um, and he had already taken a couple of species. And so there were some animals that he didn't really need duplicates of. So we didn't, I mean, we had a lot more opportunities at stuff that we just didn't take, but, um, his main priority was his number one animal of all the species in Maasai land was a Gerenok. And the first evening I had already been in camp two days before, just kind of getting a feeling of the area and taking a look around. And I had seen this sensational Gerenok that was old. He had heavy bases, but the interesting thing about him was that he had these huge curls and with any spiraled ha horned antelope or animal, um, whenever you've got deeper curls, it always carries more length. And so, when you looked at him at first, you kind of thought, okay, he looks like a, a nice representative, but he doesn't look massive. But, you know, once you take that curl into consideration and how it sweeps back, that's where it really made up for, for the length. So, like I said, I'd seen it and we kind of went in that area and we saw him about a mile from where I had seen him previously. And we got out of the truck, uh, try to make an approach on him. And we actually got within... I think within like 25 yards and he was walking from right to left, but he never really stopped. And then he walked out of bow range and was kind of walking into an opening before going back in towards some thickets. So we kind of followed for a little bit and um, cut a long story short, we actually used a very interesting tactic by using a, a herd of cattle that were nearby. And I mean, he took an incredible shot at the Gerenok and first evening we got the number one animal that he wanted over anything and it's one of the most difficult animals to get in in tanzania so um that's how we started off so he looked at me and he told me he said this is what i came here for anything after this is just a bonus and we went on to take you know that was the new uh, pending world record with a bow was top 10 even with a rifle so it was incredible then we took um, the number one lesser kudu with a bow. I mean, we did Dick Dick, we did Tommy, 
we did Grand Gazelle, we did Zebra, we did East African Impala, we did Cokes, and we did a, a Monster Leopard. So, I mean, you know, it was just, it was incredible, honestly. I mean, I think it went better than any of us had, had really planned. Wow, that sounds like it. Sounds like an amazing trip. How many days total was it? Um, so we we first we had planned to do twenty one, and I guess because everything was shut down, um, kind of towards the middle of the safari, they were like, "Well, can we stay a little bit longer?" So we ended up staying um, an extra ten to fourteen days. So it was it was incredible. Huh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> that's a dream safari out there, just being stuck in Africa. <laughs> Uh, it, it really was. And I mean, just to be out there where, you know, I mean, there's no COVID, you don't think about it, you know, there's, you just completely forget what's going on in the world. And, you know, our mental headspace is so important. And when all you're fed in the modern world is negativity, COVID, politics, it's so difficult for people to feel healthy. And, you know, people feel trapped. But when you're out in the bush, you kind of forget that anything else outside of the bush exists and it takes you back to like our primal instincts and it's just such a intimate and just awesome experience yeah that's awesome just you know being out in the bush and forgetting all the the crazy stuff that's happened in the world and being able to experience some of those amazing experiences that you guys did um was that when was your was that like towards the end of your season for you or was that kind of no that middle when was that so that was um believe it was august september so it was kind of in in that um in that time frame and you know they they wanted to do maasai land um the one area we have two maasai land areas the second maasai land area that we ended up going to um we were potentially going to start the safari earlier but i told them just based on the conditions um the grass would be a little bit taller and we wanted time for it to like dry out and you know um you know how challenging it can be when you've got too much vegetation with a with a bow so that's why we pushed it into august and it was i mean it it really went as perfect as it could be um in the first concession is where we took um that monster leopard and it ended up being the biggest leopard i've ever taken um you know in in that area i think even before we had the concession tgt had it and within that ecosystem from what I know in the past 20, 25 years, there hasn't been a leopard shot there. So it was, you know, not only are the leopards in that area super cagey and and intelligent because of the, you know, the proximity that they live with cattle and poisoning, um, that obviously makes them more difficult to hunt. But, um, you know, if you take that into consideration of how cagey they are and the fact that nobody had ever shot one and then to not only shoot one, but to shoot one with a bow, to get one with a bow was just, I mean, it was the big, one of the most, oh, should I say the biggest accomplishment of, of my career, definitely. So um, it was, it was really, really incredible how, how it all went down. That's crazy. So how many, how many leopards have you uh, guided with a bow? That was actually my first one. I'd never, I'd never, oh. I'd never guided um, a, a leopard with a bow before. So, um just to give you a little bit of backstory so when i'd obviously heard about the safari and the interest um you know i went into it with a little bit of skepticism just because i didn't know much about um bow hunting and um i've got a really good friend of mine an outfitter out of zimbabwe cliff walker that i'm sure you know of 
Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and he's very conversant with the bow. So I actually got on WhatsApp with him and just told him, I said, look, I'm, I'm doing a safari with a bow. Do you have any pointers? And he said, well, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Just realize that there's a couple of factors you've got to take into consideration. You know, the, the fact that certain animals jump the string and the proximity that you have to get in, in order bow range, in order to, to take a shot at an animal. And then obviously, you know, when you shoot with a rifle, you forget that brush plays, you know, when you're bow hunting, brush plays a huge role. You can't just shoot through brush or through grass. Um, so there was a lot of uh, pointers that he gave me, which really ended up really, I think, led to how successful our safari was, especially with the, the leopard, because he did tell me the few things that he did mention was try to pre-prepare, pre, sorry, Pre-prepare <laughs> lines, um, you know, because, you know, generally people that are hunting with a rifle, you'll set up, a, a, you know, your blind from your bait anywhere from, and I'm just going to generalize because pHs all differ, but anywhere from like 45, 50 yards to like 80, 90 tops, some people might go a little bit more, um, but it gets a little bit more risky. Whereas with a, with a bow, you know, you've got, especially with a, with a, with a leopard. I mean, you know, you've got your normal bow range, but you're trying to get it even closer just because of how, how much a cat moves. So in essence, what I did was, um, with the leopard situation, it was in a beautiful little dried up Canyon and there was rocky outcrops to our right. And then there was a huge mountain just behind us. That was about half a mile away. And we went into the Creek bed and there was a little embankment on either side. And, I positioned the bait on the other side to where the bait was hanging, not up in the tree like you usually would. I wanted, I wanted him to be shooting flat. Um, you know, with a with a bow and arrow, when you're shooting a lot at an angle, I've just heard that a lot of people have had um, issues just because it, it can get a bit tricky. So I put the setup to where the leopard would be feeding from the ground, and it was. I couldn't get it any closer than 30 yards. So it, it might've been a little bit further than it should have been, but it was, you know, the leopard was going to be anywhere from like 22 yards to, to 30 yards max. Um, oh, wow. And so, like I said, I positioned it that way so that we were shooting flat. Um, especially with leopards and stuff or lion, when you're shooting from a blind, like I prefer for them to be standing when they shoot. Um, a lot can kind of go wrong when you're sitting in a chair and, you know, you might nudge something. So we try to make it as spacious as possible. Um, and then obviously his shooting lane was, was really important. So I had either of our chairs like off to the side and I had told him that once the leopard comes in, I'll tell you he's in position. Then you stand up, draw, and then move into position into the shooting lane, which is ultimately what he did. And, I mean, at, at 30 yards, the leopard was, was broadside when, when we shot him and, you know, the, the arrow hit it exactly where he aimed. And it was, I mean, it was, it was really incredible. Well, that sounds like a great, a great story. And I wish I could have been in the blind, like a fly or something. <laughs> That's awesome. So now that you did one bow safari for, you know, a leopard, what is, what's your thoughts on doing more because a lot of people you know are gonna think you know uh they're, they're gonna be like okay i'm gonna go do this dangerous game hunt with a bow but they've not shot 
a bow as much. The hunter that we're talking about here is probably one of the most he's definitely probably one of the most achieved archers in the world and shoots nonstop. He practices a lot. So if someone wants to come and do a bow hunt, like for especially for a cat or a buffalo or something like that, what do you want people to know? Because it's not like going out and doing your first whitetail deer hunt, you know. It's with a bow. It's not just like you can no. wound one and be able to track it down. You know, these are some serious, serious deals that could happen. What would you kind of give some tips to someone for preparation as far as if they wanted to plan to do a dangerous game archery safari in the future? Well, it's like you said, the, the hunter that I hunted with, he's probably one of the most accomplished archers that, that I know. And even having yeah. said that, I mean, he had his target and every morning, every evening, sometimes even in the afternoon when we'd stop for lunch, he was constantly practicing to make sure that his his bow was shooting where it was supposed to and just getting in line with with the way that he needed to shoot. So, I mean, when you see someone with that expertise do that, it sort of puts things into perspective. Um, if you're not that experienced, I mean, practice is is key, even more so than a rifle because you know, when you're bow hunting, there's so much margin for error. And again, you're not sitting in a blind where, you know, you, you've got plenty of time to gather yourself. You've got plenty of time to make the shot. You're relaxed. Your heart rate's down. You know, you're not exercising. You're not moving. But with spot and stalk, there's so many different factors that, that come into play. You're walking. You're, you know, you're dipping between bushes and, you know, you're tired and, the end of the day the bow hunter is carrying his bow and it's not light and he's got to get ready to shoot so when you're shooting you're already out of breath because you've had to track an animal down or something so i would really say that you know if it's something that people want to do they have to realize the amount of work that goes into it in terms of their own preparation now as a guide and myself like like i we proved on this safari it's it's doable to get a lot of opportunities and to get into position. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, unlike sitting in a blind, you might get one chance a day or two chances a day or whatever it is on spot and stalk. The great thing is that you've got constant action. So you might be failing on a lot of attempts, but you're actually able to get on full draw maybe 15 times a day, maybe even more sometimes. So whether or not you're actually releasing is a different story, but you know, you're getting a lot of opportunities. So like I said, I really think practice is, is, is a huge thing. And also, whoever the outfitter is, just being transparent in terms of what you're going to expect. Um, now, in all free-range yeah. Africa, it's all going to be the same because, especially in Tanzania, you can't sit at a watering hole, you can't sit in a blind, you can't do a lot of things that you normally can do with bow hunting. So, you know, it's a, that's a huge aspect of it that I think people need to really think hard about um, before, you know, embarking on a, on a bow hunt in free range Africa. But again, it's extremely doable. And I mean, to me, there's nothing more intimate, like even as a guide, I'd much rather go out and look for an animal than sit and wait. That's just, that's just, that's just me, but you know, everybody's different. Yeah, and I mean, for anyone that's not been to Africa and experienced anything, especially, you know, wild, true wild Africa, these places are awesome. Like, I think it'd be, like, even just sitting in a leopard blind, it gets super boring. Like, because you know you could be driving around looking at, 
you know, massive herds of Cape Buffalo, elephant, seeing all these species, even, you know, cause you're sitting at a blind waiting for a leopard or a lion nine times out of 10, it's either a hyena, a leopard or a lion. That's only going to come in. You're not going to get all these other species. And so the fact that 90% of it, you have to spot and stock, I think adds a major, um, upside to doing a true wild Africa safari with a bow and Tanzania. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, also same like with a rifle in Tanzania, there's just so much opportunity to so many different species. And you really do as much as Tanzania is, is known as the most expensive um, country to hunt in Africa. When you really kind of do your due diligence and you see what you're able to accomplish on a safari, you're, and, I, and I know this sounds horrible, but you're, you're saving yourself the need of spending the same amount that you would over the course of two safaris and three safaris, you can accomplish that in one safari. So um, that is really what I would say is like the, the main thing that draws people to Tanzania is just the diversity of hunting areas, ecosystems, and just wildlife. So, you know, especially with a bow, I mean, to be able to have so many different opportunities. Usually when you're hunting with a bow, you're targeting one specific animal, whether it's a deer, an elk or whatever it is, you know, but the beautiful part about Africa is that you just have so much available to you that, you know, when you're out driving around, you might see a lesakudu, you might see a girino come in, you're seeing so much game constantly that you're able to pursue that it keeps things super exciting. And like with the hunter that I hunted with, he told me, he was like, you know, after this experience, I think anytime I'm hunting wild Africa, I'll always hunt cats. And I said, why is that? And he was, he told me, he was like, well, it gives you something to work towards because when you're hunting planes game all day, you might as well be hanging up baits and potentially get a chance at a leopard or a lion. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's almost like a, no, it's like a no brainer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And plus, I mean, you know, not like there's a lot of guys that have gone to Africa, you know, especially we're talking wild Africa have gone for a lion or a leopard, you know, three, four, even five times without having any luck. You know, there's people that have had that. I mean, that's due to maybe bad areas and such, but it's not a gimme. It's, you know what I mean? It's like you said, you might sit in the blind every, you know, every night for 14 day or 20 day of safari, but a, a big main lion might come in, but he might not be old enough. It's, you know, you got to have, the perfect opportunity, the perfect moment happen while you're there. So it's all, it's still honey. No, you know, they don't call no, it killing. Absolutely. They call it and that's what, you know, that's what, I mean, that's what I'm addicted to. That's why I love what I do. I mean, obviously we all know what the, the, the positive outcome is of hunting, but you know, I love the challenge. I love the fact that it's not a guarantee. I love the fact that it's a challenge. And that's why we discussed it on the last, when we were discussing leopard hunting, um, I'd mentioned to you how um, I try to rely as much on my natural instincts instead of using technology because I feel like I'm more in tune with what's going on. You, we tend to get so dependent on technology, like the GPS is saying this, the trail camera is saying this, Google Maps says there's a water source over here or, or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, I love that uncertainty about about hunting and especially when hunting cats, which is probably for me is, is my passion. I, I love hunting cats. It's my, but you know, like I said, my biggest passion. Yep. hundred percent. And like, you know, not to knock on any hunting here in North America, you know, the only way you're going to get a true 
a true wild Africa. Like, cause you, I mean, obviously area depends on this anywhere you go, but to get a true experience, like you will in a wild Africa hunt, uh, you're looking to spend a ton of money here in the States just for one species to experience that because you're going to, you know, get opportunities to buy tags for a a really high quality area, or you're going to be able to book a hunt on a high quality, you know, low fence ranch. That's probably probably as well managed, but you're going to spend a lot of money just to hunt one species. The money that you can spend, you know, here to get that experience, you take it to Africa and you experience, tenfold because you're in a different country experiencing different species like you can't even go to the zoo and see the amount of species that you see on a safari in africa like you just can't no 100 percent. and i think you know like there's one thing i think about a lot is how much the dynamic has changed um when when you read back in in history there were certain species in africa like a lion for instance that was and and it don't get me wrong it's still on the top of everybody's list as the most special animal but you know, it's about supply and demand. When you look at some of the sheeps or the ibexes or, you know, whatever it is, um, you see certain animals that are priced so high to just hunt one one specific animal. And people are like, okay, well, I'm okay with that. But then when you compare it to you're paying the same price to go to hunt Africa and hunt a lot of species, people are like, well, you know what, that's pretty expensive. And I think... You know, I think one of the things that's happened, it really has to do with availability, supply and demand. So I think what's happened over the yeah. years with Africa is you've got so many outfitters now. You've got so many hunting areas that everything's become so readily available. Like anybody can go to any country and shoot a lion now. You can go to South Africa and, and you know, you know what that whole deal. You can go to Zambia and shoot lions. So I think... A pro, let's just I hate to call it a product because it's not I'm just comparing it uh, comparing it to modern like yeah. you know computer or whatever um, in terms of the value of it um, so a lion that now is not so rare anymore so the value of it has gone down you know what I'm saying which in my opinion a lion should yeah. be the most I mean to me a lion is the most incredible animal that you could possibly ever hunt anywhere in the world you know so it's just it's just interesting how much the dynamic has changed and how, you know, I think when I think of hunting Africa, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like a lion is incredible leopard. You've got so many different species. And I have some people that say, well, it's, but it's so expensive. And then they go on some of these sheep hunts where they're shooting one animal and it costs more than the African safari would go. 10, 12 animals. You know what I'm saying? So it's pretty, pretty interesting, but I think it yeah. has well, and on, to- and on top of that, the- they're going to work their balls off on that sheep hunt, you know, backpacking in. And it might be completely miserable for 13 days. And on that 14th day, when you get that sheep, it's a fun day. You know what I mean? But Africa. No, and, and I get day. it. I mean, it's so biased for me to say that because, again, it's it's also like how many it's almost like I, how many. I'm biased. Are available. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. How how rare, how special is it to get that animal? That's where you get that that value. If. If you were only given 10 lions in the whole of Africa, let's just say in a given year, trust me, those things would cost a lot more than double or triple the price of some of these sheep. So I think I think that's just what it oh, boils yeah. down to. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, things have changed so much over the years that, um, you know, unfortunately, like going back to what you were asking me um, in terms of 
COVID and how it's affected everything, you know, um, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, everything we do revolves around generating revenue to basically fund what we do. I mean, without revenue, how could you possibly, how could we possibly do anything? The, the engine, the engine does not run without fuel, without petrol. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like going back to how you said the photographic safaris weren't doing very well this year, it kind of goes hand in hand because it's funny that they'll look at us, you know, a lot, I'm not saying all photographic people are anti-hunting, but some of the major ones are. It's funny that they're trying to push people, you know, going to these parks, spending money there. But when no one does it during COVID, but then you have hunters going during COVID, which lions are benefiting more? The ones in the park where poachers can get in and out easier because of the lack of resources or the hunting areas that are being managed, you know, maybe one or two lions a year being harvested to keep the, the ecosystem rolling you know, it's just it's funny because we're all working towards the same thing, but a lot of people don't see it the same no, way. No, I, I agree with you. Shame. I mean, you know, I'm, I never try to put down photographics and try to compare the two, but, you know, it is important to put some level of comparison because, you know, at the end of the day, for me, like I said, you know, to see that there was zero photographic people coming into the country, but there were a handful of more hunters coming in even with COVID, that was a huge testament to how, how, what do you want to call it? Just how we are as hunters, like how important hunting is to us. And, and people know the direct benefits of hunting. You know, people know that, you know, that if you're coming to hunt with me in Africa, you know where your money's going. You know that the community is going to benefit certain communities. You know that anti-poaching is going to be taken care of. You know, the wildlife's being taken care of. But with photographic safaris, you don't really know where that revenue goes. You can't tell me. I know people. Their, their money yeah. doesn't go anywhere else. I mean, the park, in terms of like in Tanzania, the national parks, the government will get their money that runs the, that runs the national park. But in terms of an outfit or somebody that owns a lodge, they don't put any – I mean, of course, a handful of them do certain projects. But on the most part, I mean, they're not directly invested in – whether it's Ngorongoro Crater or the Serengeti, whereas a hunter is directly invested in the land that he protects. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. You guys have – the government almost makes it more of a mandatory thing that with the hunting, the money gets brought back to them and the area compared to Well, well here's things, the thing. Like so as a – let's just call an outfitter a middle party. Like we, as hunters, as, as an outfitter, we have the certain funds that we have to push to the government, right? And we know that those funds are not going to go where they're supposed yep. to, which means that they're probably not going to go towards anti-poaching. We know that the responsibility lies on us to do what we need to do in order to protect the areas, to have that relationship with the communities and such. You know what I'm saying? Whereas, like, for whatever reason, the revenue yeah. that's generated in the photographic world in terms of that goes to the parks, the parks gets is is sustainably run where you've got to remember like in a national park you've got such a high volume of people that 90 percent of the time even if you didn't have ranges you wouldn't have any poaching because there's people driving around all over the all over the place you know what i'm saying there's too many eyes yeah, whereas like with a too hunting, many eyes you're like, too many geez, eyes when you come out on safari you're the only person you're the only car that's driving around yeah and so anti-poaching <laughs> is so much more important when you've got so much 
larger surface area to protect. Yeah. But I mean, going back to your point of this year where the traffic to the photographic places was, you know, smaller, think of it that way. There's less eyes in the parks during these times. And then, you know, poachers see that as a prime opportunity. You know, I don't know if anything happened this year in parks. I'm just saying, like you said, if they're not paying a lot for the anti-poaching because, you know, due to the amount of traffic and eyes, what happens when the amount of traffic and eyes isn't there and they're still not producing the amount of anti-poaching that, you know, you guys are doing in your areas? What happens then? Yeah, I mean, it, I, mean I know from speaking to certain contacts that I have in the parks that obviously the, the poaching situation is far worse than it's ever been. Um, and, I mean, that goes hand in hand with, with hunting outfitters too. People that weren't able to conduct safaris, I'm sure poaching was way worse than it's ever been. I mean... You know, it's without, like I said, without revenue, you you can't, you know, everything has to have a value at the end of the day, no matter how you look at it. And, you know, if, if there is no value exactly. and there is no revenue coming in, then how do you, how do you protect anything? I mean, I can't just, I can't pay for anti-poaching if, if I'm not getting money in for safaris. It's, it's just simple mathematics. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and I think people need to realize that too, because you know, going back to the fact where people, you know, they'll pick like a moose hunt. Like I use a moose hunt um, as an example because a lot of people that I've talked to growing up and through time, they're like, they would rather go do you know a twenty thousand dollar Yukon moose hunt than go on a seven or fourteen day safari in Africa because Africa's more expensive. When in reality, that twenty thousand that you just went and shot one moose on. When you would took it to, you know, maybe Namibia or some of those places that have bigger free range concessions, even if you went to a game farm in South Africa, a nice one, or even Zambia or Tanzania on a seven or 10 day safari, if you take that money there, you're getting more bang for your buck in my eye than you are going on that one moose hunt. Period. You know? No, 100%. I agree. But, you know, it's always, it's everything's always, you guys will put things into perspective. I mean, there's always, you know, people, the way that people, prioritize the hunting you know people have a certain budget now if you can afford it then it's like okay whether it's 50,000 60 20 100 whatever it is people are like okay well this is what my budget is to hunt and so I think that's how a lot of people plan their their hunting which you know I'm always thinking from the other side I'm like well you know geez like you can definitely if you're going to do this safari this year and that safari this year you can you can possibly make this work but at the end of the day people you know people want to see different things and that's you know that's a beauty about oh, about about hunting is that it takes you to so many different places it immerses you in so many different cultures and you know we are so two-dimensional nowadays where people live in their bubbles they don't really know anything outside of the state that they live in or the country that they live in but hunters have a much broader perspective on the world just because of how well traveled they are they get to see so much you know yeah and that's kind of my point is like you like you 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 mentioned it perfect they're bubbles they only know what they know because maybe their friend went on a moose hunt and they learned all about it but they don't have a friend that went to africa they just see you know false information on facebook instagram or you know they read something to where they're, you know, they're saying Africa is super expensive, super dangerous because they're not getting firsthand information. They're getting third, fourth, fifth hand information saying Africa is not the place to go. When in all reality, 
Africa is the place to go. Like I'm telling you, if anyone wants to go on a hunt in the next four years, anywhere like they want to spend some money and go somewhere, I would say go to Africa. I like even if you like had some dream of shooting, you know, a doll sheep or something, and then you thought second of it, saying, "Well, could I spend this twenty thousand somewhere else and make it benefit more?" I would hands down tell them to go to somewhere in Africa because there's no other experience that you'll get anywhere else in the world than going to Africa. Plus, to me. 99% of the safaris, even the you know ones in wild Africa where you guys are back in the bush, there's still a family-oriented oriented place where you could take a, a wife or a girlfriend and, you know, some kids. You know, you got to kind of make it work to where, you know, it's still safe-wise as far as, you know, being in the bush-wise. It's not, you know, dangerous because of, you know, things happening in Africa, you know, like rebels or Sudanese, people like that. But it's more of a a family-oriented thing than going on a doll sheep hunt because you're not going to pack your... 99% of the guys are not packing their wife. No, 100%. Um, no, I agree with you. And, you know, I mean, I, the way I think about it is when you look at... I look at Africa as being in a very critical condition. Um, a lot of a lot of the countries are still third-world countries, and we've got a unique opportunity where, you know, Africa's got probably the largest surface area set aside for wildlife conservation all in, in the whole world in terms of just wild spaces that are natural, yeah, that haven't been touched. And, and that is something that's so rare in the world that we live in. And the point that I'm trying to make is that with human encroachment, that free range wild Africa is dying. And the chance for people to yeah. hunt free range and hunt a free range lion or leopard or whatever those days, I mean, no matter, I mean, I like to be as positive as possible. My, my, my grandfather told my father that by the time he was old enough to hunt, that hunting would be gone. But here we are in 2020, and I'm still hunting, you know, two generations later. So, yep. But my point is, is that I can see the destruction that's being caused in the world, and especially in Africa, and how quickly it's happening. And, you know, my only advice to people is that, the sheep don't really seem like they're going anywhere too fast because it seems like everything in terms of human encroachment, all of that, things have been pretty consistent for quite some time. It's like in the, in the US, like you guys have a really good handle on conservation and the way you manage your game. I don't see, you know, you don't have a situation where animals are declining. If anything, because of hunters in the US, you have a far healthier population for different species. Whereas in Africa, because of that human encroachment and because of us changing from third world countries, trying to become more modern and diversify and make space for more people, it's in more critical conditions. So, like I said, I would, I would tell people that if there was anywhere that they needed to go, it would be Africa before it's too late. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I hate saying that because I'm like you, I like to be positive. I don't want to see Africa you know, the, the true adventure of hunting Africa go away, especially in my lifetime or anyone else's lifetime. But still, it's it's one of those things, like you said, it's even like there's a lot of countries that are third world that you say, you know, like are trying to become more modern that go completely opposite and become more third world and get everything shut down because it just causes major issues in the political system. You know, so, I mean. I think, you know, maybe over time some places might open back up, but I feel more places will close rather than open No, up I future. think I think you're right. I mean, it's but that's why it's so important for us as 
as hunters, you know, we're, we're in such a fragile state the world is right now with technology, with social media, with the politics. I mean, you can just see how, like you said, like even when you think of hunting Africa, even somebody that's never hunted, that's open to the idea, they immediately shut it down just because of all the negative publicity, all the fake news that there is. And it's so difficult. I mean, I don't even know where I can go anymore, where I can research something and know that it's 100% reliable. And so, you know, it's making our lives no so much more difficult because, you know, we're trying to preach. We're trying to tell people and show people, but nobody's there to listen. Nobody wants to listen because all it takes is one negative comment and that's all yeah. we need, you know? Oh, 100%. Uh, I've, you know, dealt with it a lot from friends that have gone over and I had a friend that he's an outfitter. And I think I've even probably told you the story before. He traded a hunt because he's an outfitter. He ran into a guy at just a small, small show, traded a hunt, and it was not a very reputable South Africa outfitter. And he went over there and he hated it and came back and doesn't want to go back. And he like even when we're around other people, he'll say, oh, you don't need to go to Africa. And I'm like, whoa, that is 100% opposite. You all, everyone needs to go experience Africa. And I even tell him, dude, you need to go back. Exactly, you yeah. need to go back with a reputable outfit because no, it's true. I mean, and that's the thing in any, I mean, whether you're going to go see a doctor, whether you're going to hire an attorney, it's the same thing. I mean, you're not always going to pick the most reputable person to represent you or the right doctor surgeon to do surgery on you. I mean, that's, that happens yeah. in every walk of life. And so, you know, when people, people ask me about Africa, they're like, and I'm like, you should be cautious a hundred percent, Like, but that's everywhere. You should be cautious. I mean, whether, whether you're going to go hunting in Utah or you're going to go to Tajikistan or you're going to go to Africa, you've got to get your ducks in a row. But just because you had one bad experience doesn't mean that everybody else fits that same mold. No, hundred percent. And what I kind of, you know, not, you know, pointing people out here, but like us as, you know, Western hunters and even people, you know, just in America in total, you know, you go on one bad Yoder hunt, I would say 99 point, I mean, probably even a hundred percent, the people are still going to say, they're not going to say, well, I hate Yoder hunting. I'm not going again. They're going to go try it somewhere else, you know, but they don't use that same mindset when they look at other places, like, you know, not even just Africa, like Asia anything like that just because of how far away it is and i think everyone needs to look at everything with the same mindset of it's hunting and it's life like you said you could go to the you might pick the wrong uber driver to give you a ride are you gonna never go on an uber ride again most likely not you know it's just things like that so don't knock you know don't cancel africa out because your buddy had a bad experience or no, you had one bad experience or whatever you know no, i think I everyone needs to consistently keep going Um, I don't know how much time you got left. Uh, if we need to hop off, let me know. But oh, I was yeah. going to ask you for one story before we left. I was cruising on your Instagram here, and uh, it's you posted it August sixth. It's a it's a it's an old old lion. Uh, has kind of a shorter mane, but it's super dark. Um, yeah, I know that. I know there's you, a no. It's what I'm exactly that, talking about. In that the, was if it was in August, it would have been the first the first lion that we took of the season that was in the Sulu. Um, and then I took a I took a couple more, um, and you know if if we want to look at another story, this year in terms of what I was able to experience, especially with COVID, like some of some of the cat hunts that I had, and even the one elephant hunt that I had were 
what I was able to accomplish in the, what I was able to experience in those hunts, I've never experienced before in terms of just how unique they were. Um, like the elephant was just incredible and it was a huge elephant bull. And, you know, that one big line that I posted yeah. where, you know, the client missed it at like seven yards or whatever it was. I mean, that was, that was probably, yeah, that was probably the, <laughs> the craziest story of, um, between that one and then the, the two old males that we took, those were probably the two of, you know, the most memorable, um, memories that I made this, this season. Gotcha. Well, is there any one of those that you want to maybe do a brief description of or tell the story and then we can hop on another podcast later on and dive into some of these other stories? Yeah, absolutely. Specific one well, you want to? Well, yeah, there's two. Um, and let me, I'll just give you both, of, not both of them, but I'll give you the context of both and you can tell me which one you want to hear first. Um, the, the one, okay. <laughs> it was, there were two lines, one really big line, the other line was still significantly younger, about two years younger. Um, cut to the chase um we had a chance at the big one he came right up to the blind and the client missed and we ended up getting him so that's the first story um obviously it's a lot more exciting than that um the second the second one was was um <laughs> extremely cool because we shot both lines from the same blind same morning 15 to 20 minutes apart and one of the lines we've known since 2014 so it was a yeah, so it was a pretty, pretty cool oh, in that wow. sense. Cool. Well, let's do the one where the, the client missed it because I feel like the one where you doubled up on lines, I feel like that one might <laughs> be a very long story and we might want to get into real detail because two lions, one blind, one morning, and a lot of history. So, yeah, let's save that one for another yeah, podcast. That, let's talk about the one where okay, the Yeah, that sounds good. You just got to remember, I get so – you know, I'm so ADD, I get so sidetracked and I get so caught up <laughs> in the moment and talking about hunting that what might supposed to be a one hour podcast ends up being two hours. So I apologize. <laughs> no, no worries. We don't have no time limit. I was just trying to be <laughs> right. cautious um, of what you had going on. So, uh, so um, I was hunting with a, a French client of mine and he's just shy of 80 years old. He's got two metal knees and two metal hips. Um, and he's a hunter that I really respect a lot because at his age and with his condition to be an African, he hunts with me twice a year, um, is just incredible. Um, so I had this, I had this friend of mine that was on safari with me and his biggest thing is lions. I mean, that's what he lives for. I mean, if he could, if he could shoot one or two, every, every safari, he'd do it. That's the kind of person that he is. And I think up to this point, I think, and I know for some people they might get turned off, but just realize that he's been hunting since he was like 18 years old. Um, he's shot uh, 40 lions and he shot the 40th line with me um, this wow. last season. Um, and so crazy. And, and for people that do get started in and for people that do think they might get turned off us, think of the amount of money this guy has put towards saving lions and, building the future of lions. So don't knock it till you know that. No, so, no, anyways, you're hundred percent. Right. Sorry. Um, I just want to get that point. Yeah. Out so anyway, people... so he came out on safari. We were, we were obviously, like I said, lion was a um, huge priority. We, we hunt everything along the way, but he is very specific too. He wants, um, he just is attracted to larger main lions. And so we had already started the baiting process. And one day 
we drove in, we checked the bait and I could see that it looked like I could see just tough on the tracks that there was two bales that had hit the bait and judging by the main that was left on the bait, I could tell that we were looking at one or two significant males. Um, so at that stage, we did put up a trail camera and when we came back, I was able to see what the lions looked like. And the one was just incredible. I mean, he was, he had black, they both had the same coloration of mane. They were both black mixed in with blonde, but more black than blonde. And um, so we got very, very excited. Um, you know, when, when I bait, like I, explained, like I had explained to you on, on the leopard, you know, I pre-prepare everything in order to minimize error. So we had already picked out a beautiful um, spot on an anthill that was slightly elevated in some thickets for the blind itself. And, and so that was our first line of business as we went and cut all the resources we needed, all the grass and the poles and stuff, and, and we built the blind. Um, anyways, we came back and we found that uh, the lines were not on the bait anymore. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. So I went and we, we shot a zebra and I put the zebra up in the tree and then I, I lowered some of the rotten meat just to try to get the hyenas to call the lions back in. Um, and sure enough, the next day, the bigger male of the two came back and he came back with a lioness. Um, and so I kind of started piecing everything together and I figured out what had happened because these two males were solitary. I mean, they were a coalition, but they were on their own. They weren't part of a pride. And what happened was, especially at that time of the year, yeah. a lot of the females come into estrus and she obviously called and the two males went in to set and the bigger male of the two being the more dominant, um, obviously got the mating rights. And so we saw him on the trail camera on the bait with the female and they were kind of busy, kind of mating. Um, so anyways, cut a long mm -hmm. story short. Um, we came in the next day, we decided to walk in in the evening. I'd done a beautiful walk in approach and we walked in slowly, obviously, like I mentioned to you, my clients older and, you know, because of his knees and stuff, we had to go super slow and be very cautious. We made it into the blind and we started sitting. It was about 4.30, 4.45 when we got into the blind. Anyways, we waited and waited and waited. Everything was still, it's quiet. Um, you know what it's like at, at that time of the day. And then at about, I believe it was about 5.30, I started to hear some growling in the thickets in, in the creek bed. And just judging by the, the type of growling, I could tell that the male was mating with the female. So we waited, this went on now for 15 to 20 minutes until finally at just about six o'clock, I saw the lioness walk out and she kind of walked, she stopped in the opening, kind of looked around and then walked, made her way straight to the bait. It, was, it wasn't five minutes before we saw a male come out of the thickets and he kind of followed the same path and he stopped. And when I looked at him, I was like, no, this can't be, this isn't, this isn't the big one, this is a small one. And I couldn't make sense of it. The female had been mating with the big male for the last couple of nights or whatever. And now all of a sudden, the female was now mating with the, with the other male. And usually you don't see that. With, with a coalition, usually the more dominant male gets, gets the breeding rights and he'll, he'll breed with the female. But it, this is the first instance that I'd really seen where two males had shared mating rights with a female. So th that was in itself pretty cool. 
Um, so anyways, kind of long story short, they both, both carried on feeding and we waited and we waited and finally it got to where it was just on dark. And because we didn't want to call the vehicle in, I said, before it gets dark and we have lions running around the blind, I said, let's, let's get out and we'll come back in the morning. So sure enough, we stepped out, went to camp, slept and early, early in the morning, we left at about 4.30 and we got on site at about 5.15, 5.20, something like that. It took us another 30 minutes to walk towards the blind. And when we got to about 400, I'd say about 300 meters from the blind, we kind of stopped and waited for, you know, for it to be a little bit more light and for the sun to rise a little bit. And right at the same time, you know, we're walking and we can just hear the lions roaring. I mean, you can hear, you know, the one male on one side and then the lioness on the other side. So it was just, I mean, most incredible feeling. It's pitch dark. You can't see anything. You've got a tiny little flashlight with a red beam that you're trying to look at the road and you've got these lions that are no more than half a kilometer away from you but they feel like they're right on top of you um and you probably know what it's like a lot of people can't comprehend it but that those are the moments that we as hunters that we live for um so anyways it was we were about to make our last a last uh, approach which was the last let's say 100 meters and it was still a little bit dark and that was a huge mistake on my part. And as we're walking in, it was still too dark. And the big male was only about 40 yards to our left. And he was watching us. We couldn't see, but he was watching us. He had walked around the blind and was watching us walk into the blind. So we walk into the blind. Um, my, my, my dad's a PH and he was with us in this instant. And um, I sat down. The client sat down, I looked through the peephole and just with the, the little light that I could see, I could tell that the lioness was feeding and I could see that there was a male feeding. And when I looked at him closely, I could tell it was the younger one. Now, my dad was behind me and he was busy trying to close the door of the blind. And as he went to close the door of the blind, he's trying to pull it and it won't come. It's jammed. He, he can't figure out why. And in between the slit of the door and the blind itself, he sees the lion. The lion obviously saw us walk into the blind and started coming towards the blind. So my dad taps me on the shoulder and he looks at me and he, got, he goes, the lion is he's, he's like 10 yards away from us. I said, what do you mean he's 10 yards? He's like, it's 10 yards. It's right here. So I'm like, well, close the door. He's like, I can't. It's jammed. So we're trying to figure out what was going on. Later on, we found out that when we left the blind the day before, we had closed, we usually put a little bit of string on the, on the door so that you can kind of close it properly. And we had tied it to a tree. So, and there was no ways uh -huh. of getting around the door because the lion was right there. So there was nothing we could do. So I told, I told the client, I'm like, the lion's going to come in the blind. I said, you need oh. to turn around and point your gun literally at the door. So I stand up and I look through that little slit and now the lions <laughs> walked even closer. And I mean, the light wasn't great, but I mean, I could see the line perfectly. I mean, at like six yards, how can, how can you not, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, all you have is grass in front of you and then you've got a door that's completely open. Now, just to give you context, the line's coming from the side, the, the, the door is to my, my left and the line's coming from basically where the wall of, of the blind is. So I'm like, geez, like, what am I going to do here? Like the clients, he's going to have to, 
and the client can't comprehend what's going on because he can't see anything. And, and eventually I get him up and I'm like, okay, well maybe I can get him to put his gun through the slit and he can just try to shoot here. And so I get the client up and I, I'm like, literally, I'm like, he is right. He's like five yards, six yards. That's like, put your gun and shoot him. And I've got my double and I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that close. And he puts it up there and he puts it through and I see him and I'm like, shoot, I don't, and I can't see at this point because he's taking up that slit. So I can't see anything. I've got the door in front of me and he doesn't shoot. So I'm like, shoot, nothing happens. Now the line moves to the left. Like he's coming around to come in through the door. So I'm like, so at this point, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is the worst situation ever. So I figured the best thing for me to do was to expose myself and walk out into the open so that he saw me and that he would stop. And so I grabbed the client and we both walked out. The lion got a huge fright and he stopped. He got almost like a shock and I'm, I'm like, shoot, shoot, shoot. And like, nothing's happening. And at this point, the lion growls and then turns to like run off. And as he runs off, the client shoots through these little trees. And at first I thought he hit the lion because the lion's back end kind of dipped down as he trotted off, but there was a little swamp there. And what had happened is when he shot, the lion kind of slipped with his back leg. And so his back end went down and he ran oh. across this little marsh and then stopped broadside and looked at us. And I'm like, shoot him again. And at this point, he's, a, he's only like 35 yards from us. And I'm like, shoot him again. And he just couldn't, he <laughs> couldn't shoot. And the lion took off. So we're all like, I'm in shock. I'm like, oh my oh. gosh, like how, how did you miss this? But I'm not saying anything. I'm like, and he's beside himself. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, it's the first time in my life that I wasn't able to pull the trigger. I said, what do you mean? He was like, there was just something that was stopping me. I just couldn't pull the trigger. And later on, I explained to him, like there's certain moments that happen to us as hunters. And I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it where you have this intimate experience with an animal and no matter how much you're trying to pull the trigger or whatever, like nothing happens. And ultimately he had one of those situations. Anyways, the vehicle came, pulled the trackers out. We started looking for blood. We couldn't find a single thing. And so we didn't want to push too much into the thickets and go to where he ran in because we could tell that he wasn't hit. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is push him off the bait. And so we thought, well, you know, we'll just give it a miss yeah. this evening, let him settle down and hopefully, you know, we'll get another crack at him. And sure enough, um, the client, we're both walking back to the car. And as we get to the car, the game scout points to the tree and says the lion's on the bait. And I turn around, I throw my binoculars at this lion has just been shot at and he's at the bait guarding his meat. Again. And I'm like, you know, I'm used to hunting these Wild. super smart old lions where if you make one little mistake, that lion never comes back. And then you've got this massive lion, which is one of the biggest made lions I've ever shot that just got shot at and now is back at the bait. So we literally snuck back off the truck, got behind the thickets again, had the car drive off and then we snuck back in and ultimately the client shot the lion. So it was just, it was incredible just to have that experience with the blind have the line, him miss it, and then him get a second chance at it. 
I mean, for him, he's shot so many lions, but that was, he said that was the most incredible experience he's ever experienced. So it was, it was super, super cool. <laughs> That's wild. Like I couldn't even imagine you looking out the blind and being like, he's right there. Like, yeah, that's nuts. I couldn't even like, I, no wonder he didn't, he had those moments. Cause that's one of those moments to where, I mean, you're either going to be locked on and be able to make it happen. Or it's one of those no, I mean, it's, like, it's, enjoying it's, it's it crazy. Much. And I had, I had Dallas that was with us who was filming and, you know, he's filming out the hole. He can't move. You know, he's listening to all of this. He's watching us, but he can't see the line. He has no idea how close the line really is. So it was from everybody. Everybody had like a completely different perspective. The client and I were the only two that were like in it the whole time. <laughs> and, you know, at that distance, you know, you got to remember um, if you did that during the day, the lion would have run off in, you know, when he saw us walking into the blind. But you got to remember at that nighttime, it's the cat's time. That's when they feel the most vivacious, the most brave. And so I've seen that more times than I can tell you where if a cat does see you go into a blind, they'll come and inspect it. So long as it's still dark, they generally don't really do that during the day. It's usually when you're there, like before first light, or if it gets dark in the evening, they'll usually, if they know something's off, they'll come and check it out. Yeah, they, when as soon as like it starts to get dark in Africa, they no, they I mean, don't. And I mean, you can be on foot, you can like... do what you want, and they just kind of like stand there. And you know, you'd be surprised at how many lines and stuff you walk past without without really knowing. You know, during the day, it's a it's a completely different story. That's when <laughs> you are now the the apex predator to where they kind of get out of your way. But at night, they they assume that role again, where they're like, "Hey, I'm 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 the king here." Yeah, that's their time. They own the night for sure. Man, that's incredible. I could only imagine, you know, being being there and having that lion so close and just experiencing that whole entire um, hunt unfold with that. That is that is awesome. And, to, you know, to be able to be back at the truck and the lion. Yeah, hunting, it's just, you know, like you know there. that's, that's the one thing I love about hunting. It doesn't matter how many lions I hunt. It doesn't matter how many cats I hunt. Every situation is different. I mean... I can't tell you the different things. Every year I experience something where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is something that's never happened to most hunters and to most professional hunters. And then I surprise myself the next year where something new and unique pops out again. So, you know, that's the beauty of hunting is that you constantly, you can never, you know, you can never replicate the same moment twice. Every time, no matter whether you're hunting a lion, you'll yeah. have a completely different opportunity a completely different adventure with a completely different outcome and that's what makes it so special why do we keep i mean i'm sure there's a lot of animals where you've shot a lot of the same animals why because it's not the same every time you get a completely different experience every single time yeah 100 it's and that's what it is you know you're just going for the adventure and the experience of it you know because that's, you know, like we talked about, it's called hunting for a reason. You, you're never always lucky. You're never always successful, but you're always successful in bringing back memories of the adventure that unfolds while you're there. And I think that's the whole point of Africa because I know guys, you know, and you know guys too that will go over there. There's one fellow that we've had on this podcast that goes to Africa and he'll go there and he'll you know hunt three, four or five buffalo a year and doesn't even bring them home. 
because it's to him it's not about the trophy it's about you know the the adventure the time spent in africa his love for africa and don't get me wrong he's not waiting you know for the people that don't understand he's not wasting his buffalo everything in africa is eaten like everything and uh but he just doesn't care he doesn't need the horns on the wall to to prove well, or to show to people and that's something he goes that and I just builds an because you know like the bow hunter that i hunted with i mean he is one of those guys i mean he doesn't take one trophy back and he is of the same belief he's like you know what like irrespective yeah. of whether i can bring my trophies home i'm a hunter by the true definition like i'm hunting because of the experience because of the journey it is not just because of i want to put something on the wall now a lot of people love that idea and there's nothing wrong with it because all of us you know we want to put something up it's it's respecting the animal it's it's remembering it's memories it's it's a lot of different things so I see both, don't get me wrong, I see both perspectives, but I really respect that because we're getting into a climate now where constantly we have people trying to shut down the importation of trophies. And if we get to that point and we yep. have people that say, hey, I'm not hunting anymore if I can't get my trophies, that's not a good look for us as hunters because that shouldn't be the only reason why we hunt. And so... The guys like that, that say, I don't need to bring my trophies home. I really respect that because I know if the tide changes, those people are still going to be hunting and they're still going to be contributing to conservation and wildlife management, you know? So I really do respect the guys that are like, well, you know, of course I'd like a trophy, but it's not a, it's not a deal breaker for me and I don't need one. Yeah, and I agree with you 100% because, like you said, you know, if things come down to it where trophy importations don't exist anymore, then hunting will not exist and wildlife will not exist. And, you know, that that can go into a whole other topic, but I think it's really cool that guys still go spend the money and don't even have anything to no, show back I, home I besides photos and stories and memories. You know, that that's no, a lot of respect to the hunting you. community with that. Perfect. All right. Well, I've taken up plenty of your time. I know you have some stuff going on tonight. Um, is there anything you want to leave off with? I, I want to get back on. I definitely want to have a podcast just on the story of the two two lions at one time. Like that will be a, a whole podcast on itself. Um, is there anything uh, you can leave the people with? If someone does want to contact you, what's the best way of getting a hold of you? Um, probably through. Um, if anybody wants inquiries. to get in touch with me, they can get through. You know, my Tanzania big game safari's instagram that'd probably be the the easiest um and also it's kind of people can look through the posts and get information off there i think it's a it's become a pretty good platform um but no i just i think i'd really like to take this opportunity to thank all the people that came to africa or traveled the world and hunted um outside of their own countries this year um you all have no idea how much it means to me and um, any of the other outfitters and the contribution, um, you know, your contribution to wildlife conservation at a time where we needed it the most. So I really am just so beyond grateful for the people that, that made it out. And all I can do is urge everybody. I, I know these are trying times. I know it's difficult. Um, I know we're all trying to traverse our way through this, this pandemic, but you know, we're the only ones that can can change things. And I truly believe that 
the quicker we get back to normal or we try to get things back to semblance of normalcy, uh, the better. And, you know, for those that are reluctant to go to Africa, I would urge that, you know, no, there is no better time than now to go. Um, and ultimately it's, it's because if, if you guys don't come to Africa, you know, I don't know if most outfitters, I don't even know if we could do another year like we did this year and, and still be able to protect the wilderness areas. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for um, inviting me on the podcast again, but I really appreciate it. And it's always, uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Thanks for ha- taking the time to hop on and uh, let's plan another one out whenever you have some more free time and let's talk to some more stories. I want to get that line one from you, but uh, I want to say, you know, have a happy new year and uh, let's look forward to 2021. It sounds good, buddy. Well, thank uh, you so much. And happy new year to you. For sure. too. All right. All right, bye.